You're listening to Policy, Guns and Money, the Aspie podcast. Hi, I'm Steph Tiller. On this week's episode, Dr Alex Capel speaks to Emily Harding from the Centre for Strategic and International Studies about offensive cyber operations and how to respond. They discuss how governments are integrating cyber operations with more traditional military planning, as well as responses to cyber attacks and how to deter in the cyber domain. Hello, everybody. My name's Alex Caples. I'm the Director of Cyber Tech and Security here at ASPE, and I'm joined by Emily Harding, who's the Director of the Intelligence, National Security and Technology Program and Deputy Director with the International Security Program at the Centre for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. She's a former Deputy Staff Director on the U.S. Senate Select Committee on Intelligence and Director for Iran at the National Security Council, and she's in Australia to talk to policymakers and thought leaders about how we think about and plan for future warfare in particular, how cyber operations are integrated into more traditional and conventional warfare planning. Welcome, Emily. Thank you. And I mean, ASPE certainly counts in that realm of thought leaders on cyber warfare. I was thrilled to see the the work that you guys are doing here and how well it matches up with what we're working on back in DC. Excellent. I mean, you can come back anytime with that sort of <laughs> reference. Thanks for your time. I think this is a fascinating conversation and one I, that I think Australian and American policymakers are all grappling with, um, among other nations. Tell me a little bit about the origin of this project that CSIS is working on and that you in particular are focused on. Cyber ops is a little bit of a difficult thing when we talk about offensive cyber operations. It's quite difficult to think and talk about that outside of government. Often those sorts of capabilities and the thresholds for action and the decision-making protocols and so on are a little bit opaque, and that's for very good reason. But we do need to have some of these conversations, I think, about how we integrate what we're doing with foreign policy and what we're hoping to achieve in terms of policy outcomes writ large and make sure that cyber operations are actually incorporated into that in a sensible way. So that's the work that you're looking at. If you would love to expand on some of that, I would love to hear it. So that's precisely the question we're going after. How do you better integrate cyber policy with greater foreign policy issues? This project that we're working on, the future of cyber warfare, was really born out of my experience in part on the Senate Intelligence Committee, where I saw up close and personal the way that Russia's hybrid attack on U.S. elections was reacted to within the U.S. government. And I'm using the passive voice intentionally there because a lot of the folks in the U.S. government felt like this was an unprecedented situation and they had no idea how to respond to it. Now we are, what, seven years on from that election? And I hypothesize anyway that we haven't gotten a lot better at integrating cyber in our larger foreign policy picture. And then more broadly, just thinking about how to think about cyber. What is the framework that cyber fits into? If you're looking at a cyber attack, what is proportionality? What is escalatory? Uh, What is appropriate? What level of certainty do you need in order to craft a cyber policy? I just don't think that the the U.S. government um, has gotten to a point where we really understand these issues very well. And what I want out of this project is to come up with a playbook. I would love to be able to hand this to an incoming administration or to the current Biden administration and say, okay, this is a way to think about conflict in the cyber domain. So needing a framework really to consider this and to make sure that they've gone through some of those issues uh, and at least 
are not making those decisions at the point of crisis and have had an opportunity to think about them ahead of time. Exactly. Is- In my career, I have had the fortune slash misfortune of living through a great many national security crises, and it's never the right time to be grappling with the big questions. It's the time to execute. Uh, you want to not be saying, well, what is deterrence in the cyber domain? Instead, you want to be saying, okay, we have a slate of options for deterring a committed adversary in the cyber domain. We pick one in three. That's where you want to be. Uh, and I just, I don't think that we're there yet. Well, I think, and even even in those points of crisis, protocols around who should be in the room, who are the decision makers, making it really clear where responsibilities lie and understanding who's got what capability. And that's a tricky question as well. So it, it sounds from what you're saying as though the, the US system is perhaps grappling with this uh, still after a, uh, over the course of many years. Why is that? Why are we no better at doing that? Because I, I say we because I'm going to assume, I think fairly, that Australian policymakers haven't cracked this either. So mm-hmm. what do we think the stumbling blocks are here? It's really hard. I mean, that, that what it really comes down to is it's very difficult. And when you think about conflict in the cyber domain, a lot of it gets pushed into this category of, oh, well, that's technical. That's the technical people's job. That's the IT people's job. A lot of, I think, foreign policy purists look at cyber as, well, okay, that's IT. And that's not the case at all, not anymore, certainly. So what we had in 2016 and what I think we still have now is we had the IT people talking to the IT people and sort of the broader cyber policy people talking to the cyber policy people. But then in a totally different lane, we had the Russia experts talking to about the broader Russia foreign policy and never the twain shall meet. And so nobody really had the complete picture they needed to come up with a coherent response. Uh, As part of this project, we've run several tabletop exercises trying to recreate uh, what you might do in the event of a massive cyber attack. And one of the things that we saw is depending on the makeup of the room, if you had people in there who were largely foreign policy based, there was one set of discussions. If you had a more complete mix of cyber experts and foreign policy experts, the conversations looked very different. And I think that you it really highlighted that you need to have both parties in the room to understand the full picture and to figure out how you can respond. It also helped quite a bit, honestly, to have the cyber people sitting there and saying, these things you're asking me to do are impossible. There's no such thing as magic cyber pixie dust. You can't just say, well, you know, create me an exploit and create it tomorrow. Like that doesn't happen. You need six months, sometimes a year to create the right exploit for the right moment. It's not just the kind of thing that sits on a shelf. And those exploits, yeah, exactly. Those exploits do need to move with the passage of time. Those systems are always changing, always moving, so the exploit needs to adapt accordingly. So what worked last week may not work this week. So those are those very technical kinds of questions. I think I think you're right. I think as a former policymaker myself, that kind of mystery world of what is <laughs> cyber and what can be done effectively, do you think we're still labouring under those misconceptions at the time you've spoken about clearly you know, during the Obama administration that there was that misconception about, okay, well, I assume that the cyber guys can do this. Mm. Is that still the case or are we educating ourselves a little bit better these days? Do we have a better vocabulary or at least a shared kind of sense of what's possible? I think when it comes to the realm of the possible, there is a better set of understanding. I mean, 
issues in the cyber domain have been such a big part of the news for the past few years that you'd have to be living under a rock to not understand what the adversary is capable of. I mean, you look at solar winds or you look at uh, the colonial pipeline attack and you, you can't ignore the potential knock-on effects of a committed adversary undertaking a sophisticated attack in the case of solar winds or a less sophisticated attack in colonial pipeline. So I think there's a greater general understanding that doesn't mean, though, that senior policymakers really understand what the timeline is for engaging in a cyber attack, the fragility of some of those attacks. And then I don't think that we have a common lexicon on proportionality and on attribution. What we see over and over again is policymakers really grappling with the idea of, well, I want to respond to this cyber attack that took place on critical infrastructure. But from the U.S. perspective, we don't go after civilian critical infrastructure. So what is a proportional response in that case? Absolutely. I think also, I mean, we've talked previously about this this concept that the challenges that you have in an online environment, quite apart from hybrid warfare and the future of that, of what that looks like, the challenge really is basic questions. I mean, am I being attacked? Mm-hmm. Is this an attack, a deliberate attack, a malicious actor? If so, who is that? malicious actor, is that a state-based actor or is that a criminal group or is that a criminal group as the front for a state-based actor? All of those. And and then really, I suppose, to what degree of certainty you can make that assessment mm-hmm. uh, in, in real time. And those sorts of questions don't apply when you're looking at real-world events like a terrorist attack, for example. You, you can deal with the problem and then work out attribution afterwards. But I think the the problem in the cyberspace is slightly reversed, which makes it quite difficult if you're looking at hybrid warfare, presumably, where you have kinetic attack in some ways will give you an immediate sense of who the attacker in cyberspace is, who who your kind of malicious actor is. But if they are staggered or in some way decoy kind of attack, that's going to be a much harder prospect. So how are we going to think through a framework for marrying up those two things. That's what you're working on right now. Is the solution that we try, as we have done in other parts of the online world, to match up, as for example, uh, I'm thinking of things like international norms, where we try to really make sure that what we're doing in the online world, we're holding the same line in the online world as we are in the offline world. Is that going to work for something like cyber operations, offensive cyber ops? Yeah, I hope so, but hope is not a policy. Um, I think that that's the right... Not yet. Not yet. Uh, that's, that's the right general approach. Um, so a side note, first of all, uh, your your comment about cyber attacks being hard to attribute. And even if you can't attribute them to a certain group, it's hard to know whether that group was acting at the behest of a particular foreign government or acting on their own. I teach a class at Johns Hopkins um, SICE school And my poor students, I tie them in knots all the time because they'll give me a briefing on a particular cyber attack that happened. And I'll say, well, who did it? And they'll say, well, we think that was a group that was affiliated with. And I said, affiliated with? What does affiliated with mean? And I really try and pull them apart on affiliated, sponsored, uh, located in. And what does that mean? What does that mean for our policy? If a group is located in Russia, does that mean they were acting at the behest of the Russian government? Do we know? And what does that mean if we do or we don't know? That gets to this whole uh, the attribution piece and when you should act with what degree of certainty. On the international norms question, ideally, 
we would move down that road where the same laws of war that apply on the battlefield also apply in the cyber domain. You don't go after civilian critical infrastructure. You don't affect things like water supplies. You don't affect power supplies. But as we are seeing happen repeatedly in Ukraine right now, Russia clearly is not paying attention to the rules of law when it comes to cyber attacks. And part of it is this question of deniability. They can say, well, it wasn't us. We're, we're a state that abides by the laws of war, sort of. Um, and that, oh, no, that was a criminal actor. So coming up with the tools and the tactics to be able to more precisely attribute the activity and then to be public about it, uh, I think, is the road that we all have to go down. Eventually, someday, a treaty about the cyber domain and what is and is not appropriate would be great. Uh, I think we have a long way to go, though. Agree. And I think also, I mean, that's it's interesting, uh, the aspirational kind of framework, which is to say, let's let's set the same threshold uh, as we do. But we, we may never achieve the level of certainty in an online world as we do in the offline world. And as you say, deniability is a key factor that attracts state act actors or state actors to uh, engage in online attacks where they might otherwise in the past have engaged in something a little bit more real world mm. because it's it's cheap, it's ambiguous, it's difficult. It gives other states pause in terms of their response. My concern about this, I suppose, is that we may never reach that level of certainty and that we may therefore have to live with a certain degree of ambiguity and uncertainty in offensive cyber operations. That gives us, you've used the phrase previously, analysis paralysis, which I think is a great one because it really points to this idea that you can get a whole lot of decision makers in a room and they will make different decisions because they're starting from a set of assumptions that are in themselves ambiguous and uncertain. How then does that speak to the way that we marry up the kind of planning that we would do around cyber offensive operations with what you might think of as more traditional mobilisation planning? You've got militaries, your military and our military has a cyber command and they are presumably working on how you integrate the two together. Very difficult for us to understand exactly where that's headed. I think it's difficult to do it well. I think you you end up probably having some compromises around you would have to make a call and have a decision maker just say, this is what I think we're under attack and I'm going to respond accordingly and to have some protections around making that decision as opposed to necessarily having a set threshold that has to be hit or ticked off. I'm spitballing as I talk about that just as far as how that would work in practice and how you might give people agency in terms of, of making those sorts of decisions. What are your thoughts on that? Does that open us up to a whole lot of rules of engagement and laws of war issues? Those are some very thorny issues that I think will be fought about in courts and by lawyers for a very long time. But you don't have the luxury of doing all of that in the midst of an actual crisis, in the midst of an actual cyber attack. The, the cat and mouse game, I think, will get us to a place that you were talking about where we're never going to have 100% certainty. Cyber offense is hard, but... Actors are getting more and more sophisticated every day. We've seen the Iranians, for example, go from being kind of a JV player uh, to definitely trying to escalate their capability rather quickly. And I think that that leaves policymakers in a place where they're going to have to operate and they're going to have to make difficult decisions in a time of uncertainty. And that's not unique to the cyber domain. In all of the foreign policy crises that I've been involved in, no one ever had perfect information and you still had to act. 
That I decision just had to be defensible. It had to be based defensible. Based on the information that you had at the time. Uh-huh. And it had to be had to be explainable. It had to be defensible. And it had to be geared towards a particular outcome that you thought was feasible. And I think that's where you also get into a hard place in the cyber domain. Um, if there is an attack and you want to respond to that attack, what's your goal? Are you seeking to punish are you seeking to deter future action? And I think that that's where the attribution piece gets really critical too because if you don't even know if you're deterring or responding to the right actor, then how can you possibly think that this action is going to have a, the outcome that you're seeking? Living with uncertainty in the cyber domain, you're right that there needs to not be a set threshold. Strategic ambiguity is a tool in the toolkit of all of the great powers for a reason. Uh, you don't want the adversary to know exactly what you're going to do in response to exactly what, because then they look at your red line and they say, OK, I'm going to hover right below that and we'll be all set. Um, instead, you want to set out important norms like we were discussing earlier. Leave civilians alone. Deaths is a red line. Things that point out that the impact of the attack is what matters, not just the intent of the attack. This is something we saw with Colonial Pipeline. Uh, clearly, they were only going after the billing systems, and yet the company had to shut down the entire operating technology as well. And that led to some of the, the knock-on effects that was a real challenge for the East Coast of the United States for several weeks. Uh, we went from, you know, a cyber attack by an unknown perpetrator to people standing in line at gas stations and filling up plastic bags full of fuel. Very real-world effects for what should have been a minor cyber attack. The planning thus is very difficult. Um, I think that one thing that we can do is projects like mine where you look at frameworks for thinking about this so you're not starting from scratch in the midst of a crisis. Yeah, obviously having the plan for not just who should be in the room but having a good sense of those red lines and where perhaps you can map to the offline world or, or the real world around things like uh, human casualties and so on, doing that where you can, and then potentially looking at the breakdown of have I considered these factors and and in making these decisions, can I be clear about how I got to this decision based on the information I have to hand? And then as with all crises, having to sort of just deal with the aftermath and tidy that up uh, right. at the end. And, and then I think importantly learn the lessons, which is always a difficult Lessons learned, not lessons observed. <laughs> lessons written down. <laughs> exactly. Um, that, that is also, though, when you're talking about real-world effects, there's that this idea of uh, I think there's, their thinking previously was like for like. So a cyber attack should be met with a cyber response, a real-world attack should be met with a real-world response. Has the thinking on that evolved as far as you're aware in terms of perhaps being able to calibrate slightly better? We, I think, still have a concept in the US and Australia um, where we know we need to have that integrated planning. We're probably, as you've just discussed, not necessarily getting all the right people in the conversation at the same time. I think it's fair to say that there are other nations that are much more integrated and think about hybrid warfare in a really perhaps more sophisticated way than we do. But have we at least evolved along that that line of thinking about responses as a mix and match proposition, if you like? I don't think we're 100% there yet. There's been a lot of um, academic research on escalation dynamics in the cyber domain, and those have mostly come to the conclusion that cyber is self-limiting uh, when it comes to escalation. The argument they make is that 
in part, cyber is very slow. Um, it takes a long time to build options in the cyber domain. It takes a long time to attribute attack in the cyber domain. It takes a long time to then figure out what a proportional response might be to that attributed attack. And so all of those things take a lot more time than, for example, deciding to, you know, fire off a missile at a potential site where a terrorist attack is being planned. Um, I think that those academic studies, though, are based on a world that is slowly disappearing. And I don't want us to sit very comfortably in those assumptions and then just say that, okay, well, so this is not escalatory. We can we can mess with each other all we want in the cyber domain and it's not going to escalate. And it doesn't count in some way. It doesn't count. Yeah, it's it's much more, I think people think of it much more in the realm of espionage than they do in warfare. I'm a, a creature of my intelligence community. Um, you know, espionage plays by a different set of rules. And those rules are very well understood after a great many years of things like the Cold War, where the spy versus spy stuff very rarely escalates into something more of like a hot war. And it was a safe place for various powers to compete. The cyber domain has been viewed similarly because very rarely is anyone actually hurt. You're looking at property damage. Quite frequently, you're using cyber tools for espionage and that this fits into the espionage bucket. But I think some of those assumptions are beginning to fade. In part, a lot of the same tools that you would use for espionage are the tools that you would use for operational preparation of the environment. Exactly. Looks this very similar. Intent piece is really tricky. What you know, I've spotted that this is something that shouldn't be here. What is it here to do? Mm. What, how, how therefore do I respond? Because we, we would respond both in terms of attribution but equally intent and that is difficult to actually get to. Exactly. If somebody finds an exploit that allows them to be in a position to, say, control critical infrastructure around a military base, but they haven't used it yet, does that mean it's espionage or does that mean it's operational preparation of the environment? I would much more lean towards the latter. Prepositioning. Prepositioning, indeed, in case of a contingency. And that is not something you can just let stand as a government that wants to be ready to mobilize your military when it's needed. I think that that latter piece is where the escalation dynamics question becomes very thorny. There's a lot of work done on use or lose dynamics in warfare, and I don't think cyber has been fully incorporated into those yet. Uh, I also think that part of what we've assumed in the cyber domain is that the adversary isn't necessarily seeking to destroy, but you do have some folks like Iran who maybe they aren't seeking to cause damage, but cyber tools can be finicky sometimes and you can't always predict all of the after effects when you unleash something on the world. So maybe they didn't intend for something to go wrong, but it did. And thus looking a lot more serious than perhaps it was originally intended to be, which could provoke an overly enthusiastic or perhaps non-proportionate response. But then that that is the other issue. How would we know when we're responding what actually effect we're having? It's a very much a sort of second-guessing game, isn't it? And what would we be looking to measure as far as perhaps an indicator of response? Not just the decision, which is tricky in and of itself, about once we've decided who the actor is, that it is an attack, that it's intentional that we need to respond, that that needs to be proportionate. You get through that, all of those hoops and then it's really about trying to understand, well, when we, when we put something back out there into the universe, what has it actually done? How do we measure that and what tools we would deploy to do that? Does that then provoke yet another response? Right. I think that one of the benefits of 
rule of law in a democracy is they tend to be a little bit more risk averse. Um, so they're going to be less likely to unleash something on the world where they don't thoroughly understand the effects. The U.S. government in particular, just like they tend to be very careful when it comes to kinetic activity, they want to evaluate all of the potential contingencies that might arise from whatever they're about to use. So, I mean, it's perfect. No. I mean, sometimes kinetic weapons go awry. Cyber weapons can too. But I do think that for the most part, the U.S., Five Eyes partners like Australia are going to be quite careful um, when it comes to operations in the cyber domain. Emily Harding, thank you so much. Fascinating conversation. Really glad that you were able to make some time to join us here in Australia and in the Aspie studio. Obviously, we've solved this problem now, so I think we can put this to bed. But no, it's, it's a genuinely fascinating and important issue. I'm so glad that CSIS is doing some work on this. I think any of the findings that you have from your project, you know, which is obviously, I think, focused a lot more on the US, but it will have learnings uh, both from and for Australia and for other countries in the region. So thanks so much. Absolutely. Cyber is a team sport. We can't do it without uh, our colleagues and our friends around the planet. Excellent. Thank you. With more than 2 billion people in over 70 countries expected to vote this year, 2024 has been dubbed the Year of Elections. To explore election-related foreign interference and disinformation, David Rowe speaks to Chris Saponi, the digital foreign editor for The Age and the Sydney Morning Herald. They discuss the current state of the information environment, how it has evolved over time, and how social media and AI are being used to spread disinformation. Today, I'm joined by Chris Zapponi. Chris, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, David. Zappa. Do, do people call you Zappa? Ah, uh, sometimes. Yeah, well, they will <laughs> from now on. Um, Chris is the digital foreign editor for The Age and Sydney Morning Herald and a very keen observer and uh, expert, I should say, on uh, disinformation. He's also the creator of a new podcast, uh, soon to be released, a narrative podcast called Dark Shining Moment, which uh, concentrates on the, or tells the story of the Russian 2016 election interference in the United States. So we're going to talk a little bit about the information environment, what the current state of the information environment means for a, for a healthy democracy, and also the role of the media, the mainstream news media in that, and uh, and how they can sort of perform a, a prophylactic or, or protective effect on the uh, on the environment. Chris, let's just talk a little bit first about some of the, the key trends in the information environment compared with, say, you know, when you and I were growing up or our parents' generation, what are the things that you see today in the way people consume information, in the way information affects people's uh, thinking around politics? And in particular, what are you concerned about? Well, I mean, I think probably one of the, the greatest trends that we see is sort of the decentralization of information thanks to social media. So it used to be when we were kids, we would look at, if we're talking about politics, we would simply look at what the media was offering. And the media had more or less a monopoly in this space. Increasingly, because of social media, you can have people that are in their own communities that have their own very sort of distinct or discrete view of the world around politics. And that's the lens that they're seeing the world through. Uh, and if we're not aware of what these other perspectives are, it's very hard for us to get a, get a full picture of them or, and report on them and to ensure that those people have access to views that would contradict their own. It's wonderfully democratizing in a way, isn't it? The decentralization, but it also means, I suppose one of the risks is that all views are seen as equal 
Um, everything is is leveled out. Things become sort of relativistic. People talk in spaces that they're not necessarily expert on, and one person's judgment that is inexpert can be uh, held at the same level as somebody else's judgment that is based on years of training and expertise. So that loss of, I guess, trusted authorities in information is having an impact. Is that right? Oh, yes. And and I think the social side of social media is that community and community identity is everything. So when you have somebody who can speak to a particular community and mobilize that community, they're the ones that have their ear. So there's this sort of, I think, increasingly this confusion between entertainment and the political news, if you've got a very effective entertainer. And and this, to be honest, is the result in part of decisions that were made some time back. Uh, you know, in the United States, you saw how comedians were delivering political news, right? Mm-hmm. So this is mm-hmm. The Daily Show, for example. These are comedians that are delivering this sort of sardonic view of, of the current events. And then that was embraced even more by podcasters and comedians on podcasts that are doing the same. So they're people that don't necessarily have a, a, you know, a serious grounding in political science or, or in journalism by any means, but they're the ones that are actually the serving up the the latest facts and information to their audience. Mm. I mean, it's, and it can be very effective and it can be very sharp. And sometimes you can deliver um, analysis through that sort of more lighthearted approach in a way that, that cuts through, I suppose, better than, you know, the more sober, serious analysis. But at the same time, there's a blurring. I I suppose that the risk that occurs to me there is that news and entertainment, uh, the edges become blurred and suddenly news media who are already competing in an attention economy in a way that they weren't in the past and competing against a much wider spectrum of competitors are not all that well distinguished from those competitors. Is that the way you see it? Yeah, I mean, the the challenge, as I put it, it used to be it used to be mass media. Increasingly, it's media among the masses. But having said that, I mean, I think you you would agree when there's a real international crisis, people tend to pivot towards trusted voices, I think. Mm, It's more the the slow burn things where, you know, less certain voices can really weigh in. But when there's a bushfires, when there's an international crisis and you want to know, and the first stop to try to figure out what is happening is generally through, for a lot of people, is through trusted media. What you make of it and what you take from it could be different. But, you know, when there's a a new war, there's an international crisis, those are the voices that are often people look at. And, And I think for good reason, because in this sort of networked world that we live in, where it's this many to many communication, you have people who have access to social media that are putting out their content, and then it goes direct to their audience. With traditional media, you have in that network the human element. That is, you've got the reporter, you've got the editor, you've got the humans along that chain to say, wait a minute, is this true? Can we back this up? Do we have sources that are saying this? And that is something that gives quite a bit of value, I think, to the media even today, even as it competes with these other voices that are incredibly influential on social media, is that you have that human in the chain. Yeah, And and that's, I think, the add value really in, in media. Do you think news media are doing a good enough job of, um, I guess, maintaining and promoting that distinction that they have? Do you think that there are things that news media should be doing better to sort of, I, I guess, carve out that sort of special status for themselves? It's funny. I mean, there is an evolution. So you see now media, their journalists increasingly will have not just their bio, but really like where they're coming from, their background. Why Why is this person qualified to give you this information? Mm-hmm. So it's no longer trusting that the audience will just accept this person's byline as they're the expert. You can actually sort of, you know, 
drill down and see, oh, okay, they went to this university and they grew up in this place and from this, even this kind of family. Mm. I was surprised to see this the other day with a, a New York Times reporter. It was saying he was from a working class family from Massachusetts. It's like, okay, you're really getting down to the, to the nitty gritty. But I think increasingly our access to information raises the expectation and people want almost a granular level of information of background on the, on the information that they're getting. And so now it can be provided. It's, you know, it's sort of information, you know, unlimited. And so I think media is starting to adapt to that. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's interesting a comparison with um, the digital realm where when it comes to, you know, deep fakes and, you know, inauthentic digital content, there's talk now about, you know, how do you make that transparent? How do you make it accountable? How do you track a provenance to it? And there's, there's talk about watermarking and all these sorts of things. But I just, I'm, I suppose it, you can you can give your thoughts on this, but there's an interesting parallel between doing that with digital content so that people can make a judgment about whether it's human created or computer created. And I suppose almost the provenance of journalists who are reporting this on is, facts. Yeah, is this uh, credible, right? Yeah. Uh, but I mean, you know, anything that empowers viewers, audiences, consumers to sort of track pack and make a you know, a, a critical thinking decision about do I trust this or not? It's it's actually a really helpful, it's got to be a key part of the, yeah. the solution. Look, I mean, I think as increasingly, especially with AI, the fact that you have this generative AI, more and more content can be created sort of at the, you know, the flick of a switch, right? So it's, it's synthetic content. The more that spreads across the internet, I think the more premium there'll be on authentic content. I really do. I think that, that we might be surprised that, that the, the takeaway from AI is that people are much more easily bored and jaded than they were even just in the social media era. And if that's the case, then there's going to be a real sort of premium on authentic communication. And particularly around politics, I think. I mean, you'll you'll see that the. I mean, this is my my guess, but you'll see that an actual encounter with a real politician in a public place or in a recorded event that is that is trusted to be authentic is going to have more impact prob probably than a lot of the stuff that you see sloshing around the internet. Mm. I mean, assuming that people can verifiably identify it as as authentic. I guess that's the right, that's but the but in these scenarios, I think I mean we talk a lot about AI and, and or and deep fakes. I mean, it seems like there has to be situations where that really can make a difference. So you're getting down to the last days of, of an election, and then this content surfaces, and it is deep fake, and it's you know, and it has that impact just on that number of voters. I don't know if you're creating a campaign that's all based on deep fakes, if it would have the same effect. I think that people are drawn towards. People, if they if they want to know if they want to have an actual um, accounting from their political leaders, they will be drawn to authentic content. I mean, they'll have to be. Otherwise, people are just sort of floundering around, mm. You, mm. you know, moving in their own sort of uh, you know rabbit holes. Yeah. So, I, like, I, I do think that there could be this moment where we sort of pull back from this constant focus on the synthetic that's online and start to look more towards the authentic that that is in a more analog media offering. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's a, a nicely um, reassuring and optimistic element of the conversation. We might come back to that in a moment and, and apologize if I'm jumping around a little bit here, but I, I wanted to um, read out a quotation and then we can um, sort of steer the conversation from there a little bit. This goes to the, I guess, the connection between people's uh, ability to trust information and their power to act as, you know, informed citizens in a democracy. Now, this is a quote from um, Hannah Arendt, the philosopher, and this is uh, at the risk of sounding a bit wanky, which is uh, perhaps the, the ship has already sailed on that one for me. But um, it, she's referring to 
people being bombarded by contradictory and often in, incredible claims, people uh, becoming cynical when they just that they give up trying to understand anything or, or knowing what is real and what is not real. And, and her comment was, and a people that no longer can believe anything cannot make up its mind. It is deprived not only of its capacity to act, but also of its capacity to think and to judge. And with such a people, you can then do what you please. So to what extent do you think, I mean, either in you know, well-established, advanced democracies. As your accent indicates, you um, you come from the US uh, originally and you, you you follow things closely there. Or in, um, I suppose, newer democracies, say Eastern Europe or, you know, uh, parts of the Indo-Pacific. How much concern do you have at the moment that these new technologies are providing massive gains to dictators, populists, authoritarians who might be able to you know, create such a topsy-turvy information environment. People don't know which way up is up and which way is down. And so they, you know, there's a liar's dividend, as people talk about, where, um, you know, somebody can claim uh, there's something that really did happen was, in fact, a deep fake. Uh, the reverse is true. People are bombarded by deep fakes. Uh, and you end up with a situation where people have a great difficulty in knowing what to trust, and then they become incredibly pliable as uh, as citizens in a you know, in an increasingly dysfunctional democracy. It's funny. I mean, I think that that uh, that's a definite risk. The counterbalance to that is the actual desire on the part of the public for a political outcome. And so I'll give you an example. The recent elections in Taiwan, mainland China had bombarded Taiwan with lots of disinformation, even AI-generated disinformation. They were pushing stories about various candidates, but still the bulk of the Taiwanese didn't fall for it and they voted in the way that suited them. They weren't dissuaded from their political goals. So I think that's the other side is that actual that actual desire on the part of the public for a political outcome, right? That, that can actually counterbalance this barrage of fake spectacle that's generated that is meant to actually wear out the public's, you know, the, the public's ability to reason. I mean, that is part of the, the Russian uh, fire hose of falsehoods. It was first articulated by Rancorp, but it is to exhaust the public because there's so many possibilities where, as it said, everything's possible and nothing's true or nothing's true and everything's possible. I think that works where people don't have a, have a, a an investment in there in a particular outcome for their own political society. And I have to say, talking about the US, I think that that did happen in 2016. People felt meh going into the election. They felt not very strongly about Hillary Clinton. Then you have this disruptor Trump come along and nobody's really saying, wait, what's on the line here? Well, you know, it, you know, our entire democratic system is on the line. Uh, and that's something that made that sort of interference so effective because mm -hmm. coming up against this interference were a lot of people that did feel somewhat ambivalent about the system. And, and, and again, to back up even further, I know this is coming after years of this sort of post cold war era of where, where none of this was seen as contested. So that's, that's actually some of what I try to capture, I think in this, this new uh, forthcoming podcast, dark shining moment. So, so just quickly there, I mean, do you think that, and, we'll, and we'll, we'll come to the podcast in a moment, but do you, are you suggesting that some sort of, I guess, resilience or antibodies have developed in the American uh, society, you know, society and electorate from 2016 through to 2024 that, that's going to make them better prepared for this kind of well, practice in 2020. Yeah, I mean, I would say that not just in American society, but in a democracy in general, there's this great sort of a, a awareness, this this uh, reckoning that 
that democracy actually has to be worked towards. And I think before 2016, there was this idea that we can just sort of, you know, sleepwalk our way around and, you know, it's sort of a cakewalk. And every four years we do this or every three years, depending on, you know, depending on the country. Instead, there's this new awareness that, oh, wait a minute, this is something that we have to fight for. And if you have that awareness, then you can, you know, and looking at Hannah Arendt's quote, you can fling all sorts of nonsense at people, but if they still have this desire for a democratic outcome, they can let a lot of that roll off their back. I think you see that also in Ukraine to a degree. I mean, you can't find a population in the world that is more inundated with Russian propaganda, and yet they fight on because they have a vision of their country that they want to see, which is a sovereign country with its borders intact, and that's not being interfered with by its neighbor. Mm -hmm. So, and that, and that's something that sounds very abstract, but that can motivate people, even when they're seeing things that are, could be true, maybe true, are true, but are being denied, you know, they can still keep an eye on the, on the larger picture. Yeah. Yeah. So the extent to which 2016 was a, was a massive watershed. It was a, it was a, I mean, a wake up call doesn't even come close to describing the impact that it had. Tell us a little bit, bit about what you've um, uncovered during this podcast, uh, the, the, you know, your work on the podcast. Tell us a little bit about what um, what listeners would expect from that. So when you look back at 2016, there's lots of commentary about the events, but there aren't a lot of narratives about what exactly happened. So we think of the hacks and leaks and we think of the Internet Research Agency. But this story actually interviews people who witnessed the change. So they're looking at social media, they're tracking what they see as Russian interference that's aimed at Syria or aimed at Ukraine. And then suddenly they see the same accounts pivot to the American contest. Or in other cases, a, a, a young man who's in the US that was an avid follower of various people on podcasts and YouTube. And then suddenly, years, a couple of years before the election, all these voices started to turn very pro-Putin. And he's wondering why this is. And he can see how those voices start to concentrate even more ahead of the election. Uh, so this is sort of like a uh, people's history of what happened in 2016. And it's a, a reminder of this great change that the world went through. And as, as I sort of argue it in this podcast, which I have to say is a co-production with Ranieri and co, it is that it was the moment that we had this technology, we had this political possibility, but they came together in this this dark shining moment to, for lack of a better term. Uh, and it really is the moment that like in the beginning of the 20th century, historians would say that world war one was the beginning was the, the beginning of the 20th century in earnest when this technology and politics came together to form this modern world. I would say that the same thing happened in 2016. We had the technology, we had the politics, we had the, 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 the uh, political culture, but they really came together in 2016 and created this new world where social media was, it was no longer the place where you learn of news, social media started to generate the news, right? And the idea that Russia from afar could interfere in the events of a sovereign election of, a, of another large nation, like this could happen. This is real. And, and so then we look at China through different eyes because of this as well, because if the Russians can do it and the Chinese are trying to learn, you know, this is, the, it's basically game on. And, and these, this is the world, particularly for, for we who live in open democracies with open information environments, this isn't going to go away. This is something that, you know, we have to think about in a strategic way. So fast forward eight years, and now I'm just curious to know almost what your forecast is for November this year in your native country. I mean, the technology has grown enormously. Justin Bassey, last night, our executive director at, at the democracy event that we uh, that we held last night here at Aspie, which you very kindly and very impressively helped us out with by, um, by giving your thoughts on the panel. Justin made the point that um, one AI expert, Stuart Russell, had calculated uh, 
that uh, the $20 million that the Russians spent on the 2016 disinformation campaign, which was still incredibly good value for money considering the, the chaos that they caused, that would now cost them about $1,000 to do today. Terrifying sorts of figures. The technology has come an enormous way. The degree of venom and polarisation uh, seems to me certainly to be um, worse than it was in 2016. Yes, um, people's eyes are much wider open now, and so hopefully they do. Uh, they'll be better prepared this time around. But what do you see happening around the 2024 election this year? Look, I mean, a- anything could happen. I mean, one thing that I tell myself is that on one side of the political debate, there's this sort of embrace of spectacle scandal, accusation, investigation, politicized investigation. This reflects the political culture of the one party. The other party in its own way is trying to build a new, in my view, a new sort of system of political values, right? They're they're doing a lot to try to reform the middle class. This doesn't get a lot of coverage here in part because it's a domestic affair over there. But when it comes down to election day, I imagine you'd have some people that are going to go to the polls and then some will say, why am I going? And some people say, I'm going to go to avenge what's happened to my poor, you know, president that's been mistreated by the deep state. And other people might say, well, he's an old man, but I can see that the economy seems to be doing okay. Um, employment at the lower end of the economic scale has actually improved pretty dramatically there. Inflation's coming down. Job growth is booming. So if if the economic argument has resonance, then that segment of the of the voter will come out. And as you know, in the U.S. election, it's all about who you can motivate. I mean, it's so different from here. The the the, the Australian solution would just you know would just erase so many of these problems if they had it in the no, U.S. But it's like you know, it's a sure. different different world. Sure. But yeah, so I mean, I don't I can't make a prediction, but I do think that sometimes I wonder if there's just an element of it becomes hard to say what. A, a particular party stands for anymore. And it, could that be an issue when, when the election day comes? And, and then also when you look at the track record of the Republicans, what happened with Roe versus Wade with the, with the Supreme Court rolling that back, you know, one observation I'd make is in my lifetime, the Republicans have run on abortion as a vote winning topic for them. After this decision by the Supreme Court, I could really imagine a, a situation where the Republicans are basically running away from it for, for the next 40 years because it's, it's such a vote loser for them. And it has proven to be a vote loser in all these off-year elections and local elections in the U.S. So I think that's going to factor quite a bit. And you can see with the Biden campaign, they are leaning heavily into women voters for this reason. But not just them, it's all, it's all the segments. They, they're having to, you know, to work harder for black voters because there's a sense that there's this disconnect there where they're not, the, the message isn't getting through. So Basically, we'll see. I can't. I can't offer. I can't offer a projection. No, no, fair enough. It's very unwise people uh, these days um, try to predict those sorts of outcomes. They or, or invariably um, end up looking silly. Just to wrap up, let's talk a little bit about what the answers uh, to all of this are. You referenced Taiwan, and of course, we've seen the the, the Taiwanese um, election play out. I mean, Taiwan, given I think it's the most you know bombarded jurisdiction, uh, if I can call it that, on earth when it comes to disinformation and, and manipulation. And it seems to prove itself quite successful at handling that. I mean, they've got a bunch of policies around sort of digital literacy and, and these sorts of things. They've got civil society organisations that do a great job. So there, there are some things to be learned from that. I mean, what, what, I mean if, if there were t- two or three, four top-of-the-head things that you think 
societies can most effectively implement to, to try and handle some of these disinformation issues and some of these uh, information issues? Well, I mean, I think, I think it's in, in ensuring that the public has the information it needs to, to look past a lot of the nonsense that they're going to see. I think that's important to make sure that in a democratic society, people understand what the process is so that they can know what the process isn't. There were cases where people are sending out bad information, telling people to vote on the wrong day or in the wrong way, right? This happened in 2016. And I think it's, it's sort of a feature of some elections. So, you know, ensuring that people understand what the big picture is and ensuring that they understand what the big picture of democracy is. It's not just this system that was sort of handed down to us and we don't know what to do with it. It's that every generation has to defend democracy anew. That was true in the 1990s when I was years ago, I remember that was the, sort of the high point of free trade globalization. And there were people in the U.S. saying, you know what, voting doesn't matter so much. Well, actually, no, voting mattered a lot. So in that case, the challenge for democracy was showing that, no, this matters. Even with the dominance of the commercial world and the business world, the political world still matters. Now we're in this other space. I think, you know, imbuing the public with the understanding that our system has consequences, it has meaning, it has history, it has continuity with that history, and that it's just that our information space is changing and with that our economy is changing as well. So Dark Shining Moment, Chris's podcast, that will be coming out when? It'll be out in March. Okay, looking forward to it. Chris, thanks for your time. Thank you, David. That's all we have time for this week on Policy, Guns and Money. We'll be back with another episode soon. Thanks for listening.